My name is Justin the and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to be talking about Indonesian cult cinema. And this is a subject that Will really wanted to tackle. And I'm curious to know, like, where you got an interest in it. It's a subject that I'm eager to explore that I know virtually nothing about. This is a very exciting topic, but it's also an intimidating one because, um, okay, I'm going to go uh, the long route to answer your question. It's like, when you start getting really into film, first you understand that you've got movies like, you know, The Godfather and Pulp Fiction. And, uh, you know, those are the movies. You know, you got your Citizen Kane. Those are the good movies. That's not the level above, like, Michael Bay. Uh, and then pretty soon you learn that there are these things called art movies, which are by people like Bergman and Fellini and Herzog. And then you also learn that there's a thing called a cult movie. And those are made by people like Ed Wood and Roger Corman. Wait, are those bad movies? Well, there's no such thing as a bad movie. <laughs> Available on iTunes Podcast. Check it out now. You know, eventually you understand that there are a number of different film canons that are existing alongside each other. But then, like, there are canons within canons and canons that seem invisible. And, you know, like, there are a lot of resources out there to help you get interested in, for example, Hong Kong action movies or even Bollywood movies. Those are sort of exotic, faraway genres that are nevertheless relatively accessible for Western viewers like us to get into. Then there are whole other worlds that you eventually discover. Worlds like Turkish ripoff movies or low-budget African action movies. And all of this feels like the dark matter of film history. And it's also fairly undocumented most of the time. It's difficult to find primers on a lot of these you know, outputs from different countries. Like, we've talked about it before, even India is such a vast filmography. And it's tough for someone to take your hand and be like, hey, these are the movies you should watch. Because they're not only a lot of them, they're also very long, and you need to get used to the kind of rhythms that they work So at. for about 10 or 15 years, I've had this book on my shelf called Mondo Macabro by Pete Toombs. It's a great book. It has always intimidated me. It's a book I've not spent as much time with as I have other books on my shelf because- Really? Yeah. Uh, and, and it's like a masterpiece of a book, but- it's like it's weirdly intimidating in a way because it's like you start flipping through it and there are so many movies in there that like I, I flip through and it's like I want to watch all of these but then it's like how do you find these movies how do you find these like strange Chinese erotic films or strange Indian films or, or Argentinian horror films I remember reading through it the first time I picked it up paying an absurdly expensive $40 for it because it's long out of print and reading and writing down movies I wanted to check out and I could not find them anywhere even to this day a lot of them i cannot find copies of or if they're out there maybe floating on some youtube ripoff website no english subtitles and it's like ah it's so frustrating so indonesia is not a country that i know a lot about it's not a film industry that i know a lot about but from what i've seen of it it seems to be this at least for me this incredibly untapped oil reserve of fascinating strange and weird movies and like i don't know i look at it and i'm like like, can somebody help me out here? Like, what's what's the canon of these movies? Well, in Mondo Macabro, Pete Toombs actually breaks it down fairly well of what are the kind of important films, in his opinion, that you should check out. And a lot of the films, especially in the Indonesian section, are available now and have been for a couple of decades, thanks to Pete Toombs' DVD label, Mondo Macabro. Yes, absolutely essential. And I'll just say, too, that there is an Indonesian cult film that I know very well, and it's probably 
probably the one that like if you ask cult genre cinephiles to name one it's probably the one they know which is 1988's lady terminator a film that i know very well because our pal peter kaplaski actually owns a 35 millimeter print of it yeah i remember when the toronto underground cinema was open going to see one of its many 35 millimeter screenings there and it was a mostly empty theater except for peter and some of his friends maybe you were one one of them i think i was there yeah Yeah, i I was there too and uh you know just had a great time and he showed it showed it countless times there so this movie i do want to give a breakdown for people that haven't heard of it before its original title is revenge of the south sea queen and you may be going oh and they renamed it lady terminator just to make money off of it no 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 lady terminator is a very apt title because there are countless scenes in this film just shot for shot recreations of terminator the james cameron film so the plot involves this killer goddess the queen of the south seas and it opens in the 19th century so you know you watch these opening scenes and you're like where does the terminator fit into this (laughs) queen of the south sea has i guess it's not exactly a vagina dentata she kills people with her vagina by having sex with them but it's because she has she has a snake Um, or or an eel of some kind in her vagina. And the men that she's having sex with aren't satisfying her, hence their death. So anyway, one lucky man is able to escape this fate. He has, he's quick on the draw and he's able to kill that snake eel creature. And this puts the queen in a very bad mood and she puts a curse on this man's granddaughter. And it turns out, a hundred years later, that this man's granddaughter uh, will turn out to be a young pop star. So the queen's spirit comes back. It infiltrates the body of another young woman, an anthropology student, and the chase is on. And the chase is very similar to the original Terminator, except now there's pals like Snake, a very hilariously English dub white guy who is friends to this pop star and her generic white guy uh, boyfriend who's helping her out through this. But it's all about the like weird, you know, readings of some scenes, like the shootout at the police station where the Lady Terminator breaks in, decked out in leather jacket, machine gun in hand, just gunning down all the cops that get in her way. And then there's a shot that I'll never forget where it's just a guy picks up a phone and he, he puts it to his ear, and then the Lady Terminator steps at the frame and shoots him. There's an insane amount of violence in this movie. Oh, yes. The Lady Terminator has a machine gun, and she uses it on everyone in her way, very sadistically. I mean, this is just one of many moments, but there's a moment where she, like, shoots a guy with a machine gun and then just, like, stands over his corpse, still just blasting away at it on the ground. And there's, like, really funny scenes, like this one where a bunch of punks are hanging out. You know, the recreation of the Terminator coming up to them and taking them out, but in this case the terminator has sex with one of the punks and one of them is just laughing so hard and he's just pissing and he falls to his knees piss just flying around his face (laughs) it's undeniably hilarious it ends with a whole swat team being called in to kill her uh, but not before we see her body burned and charred but still moving looking like it's covered in paper mache Mm -hmm. she pops out of the fire and there's a final showdown but you know the film is saved by one of the heroes who survives and goes hey i thought you were dead then he looks at her and goes i want to live forever (laughs) boom credits roll i think there was clearly some sort of attempt to you know, maybe cross over into the American market with this one, because a lot of the film is set in America, although not filmed there. And it feels like it was originally like they're mouthing English dialogue as well. And a lot of them are 
at least white passing actors too. Um, so I think all of that contributes to the movie's dreamlike quality. It's like the dream that you have after you watch The Terminator. Well, I think that the reason for the kind of like feel to Indonesian cinema has a lot to do with their history. And so I just did like a quick dive into it. There is probably tons more complexities that I didn't grasp when I just researched what's been going on. But it explained a little bit of like, oh, this is why these movies are like this. Like the fact that, you know, Indonesia was under Dutch colonial rule for a long time until 1949. And they also got invaded by the Japanese during World War II. Or that Indonesian theater is all about outdoor large musical numbers and big special effects, which translates to, you know, the big special effects movies that are their cult films. After 1949, Indonesia became independent. And in 1965, a military coup took it over and began a long period of martial law. And during that intervening period from 1949 to 1965, relations with the West were somewhat fraught. The government was seeking closer ties with China. And also during this time, the local film industry was not a great priority for the government. So over half the country's cinemas closed. But that changed a lot under the military dictatorship. I mean, funnily enough, one thing that military dictatorships are sometimes good for is uh, invigorating a country's film industry. Hey, yeah, man, cinema's the ultimate propaganda tool, as the Nazis said. <laughs> so let's get that going. They actually put in place a rule that if any production company wanted to import three like international productions, they had to produce one to be able to get the permission to do so. But what's kind of ironic is that censorship was actually very much loosened under the military dictatorship. They wanted to spur film production. They wanted to get asses in seats. So they loosened censorship greatly. And so as soon as the 70s began, movies became a lot more sexual, a lot more violent. All of these exploitation films, you know, there were horror films, women in prison films, action films, as well as movies that combine a lot of those genres. And they mostly loosen censorship because at international sales conferences, they realize that's what sells. People want sex. They want violence. So if they want, you know, films to travel, if they want even, you know, the idea of Indonesia to get out there, then they need to give the audiences what they want. And it's, you know, the stuff that makes up a cult film. I mean, it's amazing to hear that because, like, obviously violence and sex sells, but you look at the American exploitation films of the 50s and 60s, and they're constantly selling the sizzle more than the steak. Whereas with these Indonesian ones, they're like, oh, you want some violence? Please have some. <laughs> well, I also think that, like, most of these movies were made in the early 80s, so it was a different time just entertainment-wise that, like, you needed to give them the goods. You couldn't just kind of skimp on it, like the promise of, you know, David Friedman productions. And I also think it has a lot to do with the kind of cultural roots, because almost all the Indonesian films that I've watched that have come out of, like, this exploitation system are rooted in cultural practices, belief in black magic, things that come directly from the country. Even the Terminator ripoff we talked about before, like, it's the Queen of the South Seas. They didn't just do a robot thing. They actually, like, based the jumping off point in something that is distinctly Indonesian. I had a great time watching these movies because, you know, national cinemas can have this weird dreamlike quality because they're often 
well, especially exploitation cinemas, they're often heavily influenced by whatever the most popular movies in the world were at that time or somewhat before that time. And oftentimes that's Hollywood, of course, but other countries too. So in these Indonesian films, you see certain familiar tropes filtered through a different country's particular socio-political context. I mean, Italy is a classic example of a country that's done this. Like, you know, it takes the influence of the Hollywood Western and then it creates the spaghetti Western or it takes the influence of zombie movies from abroad and it does its own bizarre distinct spin on them. And Indonesia, I get the sense that a lot of their influences were from Chinese cinema because that was a really big import. And like earlier on in the birth of cinema in Indonesia, there were Mandarin Chinese companies that were producing films. Because you look at the other pictures that we watch for this episode, for example, Queen of Black Magic, and that is you know, distinctly a black magic film of the kind that you would see coming out of the Shaw Brothers, like The Boxer's Omen. Queen of Black Magic from 1981, hugely entertaining movie. The main character is played by an actress named Susanna, who was Indonesia's biggest horror star. She plays a woman who in the early scenes is thrown off a cliff by an angry mob. They all think she's a witch. And the person who has incited this belief is her ex-boyfriend. Some time ago, he deflowered her. He promised to marry her. But then, of course, he went and married someone else. And now he thinks that she is sabotaging his wedding with black magic. And, oh, what is that? She's actually being trained by a black magic magician. And what does that training involve? Seemingly jumping and doing like front flips in front of a giant painting of a sun. That's right. She survives the attack. She's saved by this old master. And he tells her, you know what? If you really want to get revenge, then you should become what everyone thinks you are you should become the queen of black magic this is the original witch <laughs> and from this point on the movie has a certain i spit on your grave structure where she has revenge on all of the attackers one by one and, oh what a revenge that is which includes making someone like you know essentially boil over with those big bladder effects on their face one guy just rips his head off if there's one scene from this movie that i know i will remember it's that guy you alluded to where like his skin starts to starts to boil gets filled with pus and like there's this big bubble that forms on his cheek and it starts to like expand i mean i guess they accomplished it with a balloon yeah it's bladder effects is what it's called i i mean yeah i don't know anything it's like actually kind of an incredible gore effect i was looking at it like how did they get the air in that balloon i mean that's a classic effect that you see a lot in the shaw brothers like hex movies and like i previously mentioned the boxer's omen just bubbling like latex stuff on their skin as they scream in agony i would say though while i don't have that much of an affinity for those shaw brothers movie this one for some reason just like the way that they play out the gore effects happen not quickly but they take up less time than they do in the uh, Shaw Brothers equivalents, where I'm like, all right, get on with it. The guy's skin is bubbling. Yeah, I mean, I like I like those Shaw Brothers movies more than you, I guess. I mean, The Boxer's Omen, the, the Hong Kong film, feels like it's just one long gore sequence, you know? And so we mentioned Susanna, who was like one of Indonesian's 
biggest horror stars. And the frustrating thing is, we'll take their word for it, because while she acted in 29 films, according to Letterboxd, which I'm sure is actually much less than she actually has credits for, none of them are available except for Queen with Black Magic, officially with English subs. And listen to these great titles. Ghost with Hole, The Snake Queen, White Crocodile Queen, The Hungry Snake Woman. I mean, I actually, I think some of these are available, but most of them aren't. Did you say Ghost with Hole? Yep, that's what I said. 1982's Ghost with Hole or Birth in the Grave, which was is credited in Mondo Macabro as Indonesia's first official straight up horror film from 1972, which he starred in. Oh, God. So come on, company, somebody jump on it. And I know that Severn is doing it because they released Satan's Slave as well as Primitives from the same director. So maybe they're like winding up to do more Indonesian cinema. The problem problem is is that these movies have no they don't have a jackie chan and they're also not like a slasher film that like slasher movie fans they'll buy slasher films by the bucket load even if they don't know what what it is queen of black magic oh it's not italian what is it that's a tougher sell until a company like gets it under the skin of genre fans and it feels like mondo macabro really tried but even they're easing off of it going back to the well of like italian giallos and paul natchi films because i guess maybe nobody wants any of these indonesian movies oh god it's too bad i mean these movies they have such a bizarre and powerful mood at times i i didn't watch satan's slave i was gonna watch satan's slave but i mixed it up with another one like satan's slave is a huge hit right yeah satan's slave is like a massive hit in Indonesia. It was just remade a couple of years ago. And the original one, uh, the best way to describe it is it's kind of Indonesia's phantasm. I did instead watch Satan's Bed, uh, which I mixed up with Satan's Slave, but I'm glad I watched it. It's a fun Nightmare on Elm Street ripoff by the same director as Lady Terminator, H. Tujat Dejalil. Uh, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. I'm sure I am. Uh, it's I mean, pretty much like a beat for beat ripoff of Nightmare on Elm Street, but it also has a bit of exorcist thrown in as well. And, you know, there's some tedium in the film. I saw a lot of reviewers on Letterboxd complaining about the tedium, but you know what it also has is a lot of spooky lighting, a lot of fog effects, that low budget gore and uh, a fun climax where a dollar store skeleton pops out of a coffin and there's another scene where like a car is driving away and a bunch of dollar store skeletons get thrown on it sign me up <laughs> yes please i say compare it to just any run-of-the-mill slasher movie from america from the 80s i think this one stacks up pretty well and i think something really interesting is we talked about like cultural roots and a lot of these films are based in Indonesia history or they have like the Muslim faith as their background. Like that's the case with Satan's Slave. We usually associate, you know, spookiness to Catholic themes and to see it from a different perspective is really interesting without like talking down to the audience because, you know, when Satan's Slave was made, it was assumed that it would just be consumed by Indonesian audiences. And that's really refreshing and fun because you get to see like tropes. Maybe you associate them with, you know, just general horror films, but they're done in like a weird off-kilter way. Something else that became massively popular in Indonesia in the 1960s was comic books. And a comic book is the basis for the last movie that we watched this week, The Warrior from 1981. Starring Indonesia's action star, Barry Prima. And I loved this movie. Hugely entertaining, full of fun stuff. There's a strong spaghetti Western influence, as well as kung fu and stuff that feels at times like a horror movie. Other things that feel 
feel like sword and sandal stuff. Or a passion play. Uh, the Jesus um, parallels are very strong in this film, except they go the extra step. They don't just uh, parade him through the street where people uh, spit and throw uh, stuff at him. They also crucify him and then they gouge the hero's eyes out. Yeah. So this movie is just an incredible stew of disparate influences. So much happens in it. It's set in the 19th century when Indonesia was under Dutch colonial rule. The hero is Yaka, maybe it's Jaka Sembang, played by Barry Prima, and he's sort of a Robin Hood figure. He works with the freedom fighters, and he is the scourge of the ruling classes. And he's been jailed, he's been tortured, he's had his eyes gouged out, but nothing keeps this man down. And he has to fight some real tough baddies, including a guy that the only way to kill him, because they split him in half, they cut his head off, won't die, is to keep the parts, uh, to to finally slice them into pieces and keep them apart. That's the only way to kill them. It contains a lot of truly impressive violence. There's a scene where one of his opponents gets this big wooden rod blasted through his throat. It's so gory, too. You know, it's funny. Like, we're talking so much about the violence, and these movies are incredibly violent, but... I don't know. There's a certain um, joie de vivre about them. Well, there's a kind of let's put on a show feeling about them. Like, I would never recommend any of these movies for intricately choreographed martial arts. But the fact that they're like very rural, which you never see in like Shaw Brothers productions, and that there's like almost a feeling of community in all of them. Most of the action films that I've watched that come out of Indonesia are very community based. And the Dutch are a major villain, which, hey, man, I love that. (laughs) Rising up again. Against colonial oppressors? Mm, that's my favorite genre. So I know that this is basically just the start of my journey with Indonesian genre cinema. But from what I've seen, it's like, if you like Italian horror movies, if you like Shaw Brothers martial arts movies, if you like spaghetti westerns, how about try something that has all of those things in one? Again, like if what we talked about sounds interesting, it feels like I'm working for the companies who are putting out these Blu-rays. <laughs> Buy them, watch them, talk about them, because the filmography of just the directors that we mentioned spans 30, 50 movies and none of them are available. It's infuriating. I want to watch these movies so bad. And, you know, if I can get my hands on like a VCD, there's no subs. It's full screen. Looks like crap. And, you know, these movies could be disappearing forever. Yeah, it's like, listen, I love Herschel Gordon Lewis, but we've had enough restorations of him at this point. Do I need another Lucho Fulci film or an Argento film in 4K released in a steelbook again? Let's find out more about H2 Tujat Jajil. That's my challenge to film culture. All right. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Ryan, and it goes, Dear Important Cinema Club, would you consider ever doing an episode on Robert Wise? I think it would make an interesting discussion, going from the editor of Citizen Kane and the Magnificent Ambersons to directing The Ur- Day the Earth Stood Still, The Haunting, West Side Story, Sound of Music, The Andromeda Strain. From what I can tell, he directed a film in almost every classic genre. I personally love his compositional style and use of split diopter lenses. Keep up the amazing work you guys do with the podcast. It has been my most cherished discovery of 2020. Best, Ryan. Well, thanks very much, Ryan. First of all, Robert Wise is burning in hell right now for having helped with the butchering of the Magnificent Ambersons. No matter what he did after that, that was his great sin that he could not come back from. Uh, That's sad. I mean, he certainly made some good movies. I, you know, The Day the Earth Stood Still is really good. I'm a huge fan of his Val Luton movie, The Body Snatcher with Boris Karloff. Great film. Robert Wise has also made some films that I can kind of take or leave, like The Sound of Music. Yeah, not a big fan either. I feel, though, like he has a big, you know, 
know, auteurist strain from like, uh, you know, Cage Cinema fans who are like, ah, yes, but you need to see the House on Telegraph Hill, which came out the same year as The Day the Earth Stood Still. Now, that is the great Robert Wise film. It's funny you say that because I always associated him with like white elephant art, you know, like West Side Story, you know, big Oscar-y stuff. Ah, but because he kind of clawed his way up from the bottom, I think that's why it's more fun to impose a creator vision on him. Like, he did not start with big prestige films and just stay in the big land of prestige. He has, like, weird stuff all over the place, like, you know, The Haunting in 1963, and then he directs, like, the mega epic The Sand Pebbles uh, in 1966. I'm sure there's more to explore there. Like, I'm really... I, I've never seen his B-noir film, The Setup, which I'd like to see. You know what? I feel like there is stuff to talk about, Robert Wise. I mean, he went out on top directing the uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979, which I have never seen. I've seen parts of it, and it is a snooze. <laughs> That's what everybody says. So uh, thank you very much for the letter, Ryan. And our next letter goes, Hello, guys. Please consider doing an episode on Alan Parker. You may have already done one, but I could not find it. Thanks, Giant Gorilla. <gasps> a giant gorilla? <laughs> oh, I'm very excited about this. But uh, before we get to the topic of giant gorillas, uh, Alan Parker, are you a fan? Not a huge fan. Haven't spent a lot of time with the body of work, but I've actually never seen Angel Heart or Midnight Express. So I think I'm, I have some huge gaps in my Alan Parker knowledge, although I know that he does have his fans. I've always associated him with a book I would always stumble upon in used bookstores of cartoons he made. Like he had like a, not a strip, but like a one panel thing about being frustrated about not being able to make movies. And yeah, very interesting. But yeah, I've seen Birdie. I've seen uh, his version of Evita. And who can forget The Life of David Gale, the movie he went out on. How about uh, The Road to Wellville with Matthew Broderick? I have never seen it. Uh, You know what? I actually really like Pink Floyd, The Wall from 1982. I think there might be a lot there for an episode, but like the challenge is uh, getting one of us excited to do it. Bugsy Malone. I mean, Mississippi Burning. God. Oh, I mean, there's a lot to talk about that one. <laughs> yeah. But as we always say on the show, we will get to all of cinema history eventually. So right. Alan Parker is on the list. But OK, so I saw this email come in, came from a giant gorilla. I got very excited because <laughs> I'm like, who doesn't love giant gorillas? So me and Will decided at some point in the near future, we got to do an episode about uh, gorillas, right, Will? That's right. We are going to do an episode on uh, movies that have guys in gorilla suits. So we're going to be talking about Schlock by John Landis. We're going to be talking about, I don't know, what what else did we say? Like, Wait, there was a big box set of universal horror films that were all gorilla-based ones, right? So we got to pick one from there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about guys like Ray Crash, Corrigan, and uh, Bob Burns. But that's in our future. That is not the next episode we're going to do. Uh, but thank you so much for sending that letter, uh, A Giant Gorilla, because it brought it to our mind and i don't think we would have thought about it for at least a year because we are gorilla fanatics we would have gotten to it eventually isn't it great this person a very kind listener a very good person has inspired us to do an episode it's not immediately alan parker but it is (laughs) a a different topic dedicated to gorillas but not not just gorillas (laughs) men in gorilla suits and not planet of the apes either specifically gorillas uh i'm i'm actually uh, very excited to kind of try to go back because my love for gorilla suited performers 
formed in probably my college years. It was not a childhood affection. I mean, it certainly is for me. It's like you show me a Three Stooges short where like there's a guy in a gorilla suit who's chasing Shemp or something, and I am so happy. If you show me Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla, and isn't that Ray, isn't is that Ray Crash Corrigan in that one? I'm not sure, but you know, I, I hate to quote John Landis because the man's a murderer, but he has often said that a movie has a guy in a gorilla suit. It's a good movie, and I think he's right. Yeah, I don't think there's any evidence on the contrary that can be brought to our eyes. So what are we doing on the Patreon episode this week, Will? Well, speaking of great movies, we are checking in with one of Hollywood's foremost stylists as he continues to work abroad. We watched the new Rennie Harlan movie, The Misfits, starring Pierce Brosnan, a movie that is notable for having been produced by and co-starring a rich doofus. Yep. So it's an excuse pretty much to talk about the uh, rich person that funded the film and who co-stars in the picture as the coolest man in the world. And also for us to indulge a little bit in our Brosnan love. Oh, love Pierce Brosnan. All right. So what are we doing next week, Will? Next week, we're talking about um, a Hungarian filmmaker whose name I cannot pronounce right now. But please. <laughs> I'm sorry I threw it your way because it's a topic that I chose. And you know what? I do not know if I can pronounce his name either, but it is... Miklos Jankos. He's most famous for directing The Red and the White and for having a style that is usually shot in the open air, made up of long takes. I feel like we'll watch his most famous film, as well as The Confrontation, which is a film about a student strike, as well as Red Palms, which is his version of a musical. So you hear that, folks? From Indonesia to Hungary to guys in gorilla suits, nobody beats the important cinema club. (laughs) That's right. So don't forget to become a Patreon subscriber. Patreon.com slash the important cinema club i forgot to say oh hey uh before we go uh, don't you have some new gold ninja video releases you want to tell the folks about oh that's right i have two new gold ninja video releases i am releasing a new film called dinosaurs in a mining facility and the way that i'll pitch this film is that it's probably the funniest picture i saw in the last year it was made for no money by a group of friends that spent five years making the film and I don't want to describe exactly what it is because it'll ruin, you know, the magic of the picture. But it does feature dinosaurs in a mining facility. It is what it says on the tin. But it's just the execution of it that is so special. And, you know, when you see maybe clips of it, you'll be like, oh, it's like Tim and Eric-ish, right? No, it's not. It's very sincere in the way that it goes about things. But it's just the execution of the entire concept that is amazing. And... In a Gold Ninja video first, the director offered to uh, cut together a documentary for the film when I told him that I wanted to put his picture out. And he spent six months putting together a two and a half hour documentary about the film. And it is riveting so good so well produced and it's on the disc 15 bucks and you get the movie you get a commentary with me and the director he did a video commentary with the actors where he actually like put the actors on a green screen and like edited the commentary as the movie plays behind them so i would definitely recommend checking that out and me and will also collaborated on a disc that's coming out this month uh for a little picture called the mad monster and well, who, who is the director of this picture, Will? Well, the director of this picture is the only director I can get excited for anymore. His <laughs> name is Sam Newfield. Sam Newfield has made 
hundreds of films, literally hundreds of films in his long Hollywood career. I believe more than 270. (laughs) I said has made. He's long dead. But in the 30s and the 40s, he was wildly prolific. He never made a film that we would call a prestige film. He never made an A film. You may have heard of some of his films, though. He made The Terror of Tiny Town, the all-little-person Western. He made a number of films that have been on Mystery Science Theater 3000, including I Accuse My Parents and Radar Secret Service, as well as the uh, sexploitation classic She Shoulda Said No and The Flying Serpent. And the film of his that we're talking about that is being released by Gold Ninja Video is The Mad Monster from 1942. And so this picture is uh, Poverty Row's attempt to rip off The Wolfman, which had come out right the year before. And by Poverty Row, I mean like this is a PRC production, Producer Releasing Corporation. So this is the cream of the bottom of Poverty Row, which is where Sam Newfield worked. And why are we releasing this film? Why are we dedicating a disc to Sam Newfield if... He is a director that I feel has no fans, right, Will? We got really interested in Sam Newfield because of the scene in Luke Millay's movie, uh, Le Siege de l'Alcazar, where a bunch of cinephiles are sitting around a table and one of them says, the only filmmaker I can get excited for anymore is Sam Newfield. And like that scene is so funny because like it, it really nails a certain kind of like, you know, digging for gold, like a certain contrarian cinephilia thing. Nevertheless, it did get us interested in Sam Newfield. And I mean, I've seen a number of Sam Newfield films over the years, and I I like I like his filmography, you know? I'm going to make a case for him as someone who his films are short, they're efficient, and he made a lot, and a lot of them suck. But some of them are actually really interesting, like the one that is the bonus feature to this disc, a noir that he made, which is about a, a guy gets out of jail, marries a young woman, and he's psychotic and wants to murder the people around him. So it's under an hour. No, it's 75 minutes. It's actually really well shot. It's like real moves at a brisk pace. Anytime there's a camera move, I'm like, oh boy, this is fun. And even the main feature on this disc, The Mad Monster, it's got that fog. It's got, you know, a big bushy werewolf played by Glenn Strange, the guy that would go on to be the Frankenstein monster after Boris Karloff. Folks, if you want to enjoy this movie as being so bad it's good, that's your business. You can you could enjoy it that way. Or you can enjoy it as like a fun, spooky, poverty row mystery horror film. Exactly. And I always love the idea of taking these filmmakers out of the gutter. I mean, that was a whole idea with Golden Ninja Video and going, all right, let's treat them with respect. Not, you know, a contrarian's opinion, not like completely debased from any kind of reality, but let's find the entertainment in this because I think it is there, but it's just been kind of sanded off by being in the public domain, by being consumed for so many years and being lesser than stuff like The Wolfman. But there's still a lot to love, even a movie like The Mad Monster. And I think he just has an incredible career, Sam Newfield. It's like, oh yeah, there's so much to talk about uh, when it comes to him. A lot of the films may be bad, but they all like hit on just interesting little nooks and crannies of both film history and American history, you know? He's the first filmmaker to make an anti-Hitler film. I mean, that's incredible. You know, before Charlie Chaplin, for God's sake. So you can pick up The Mad Monster on Blu-ray, as well as Dinosaurs in a Mining Facility at GoldenNinjaVideo.com. And as per usual, they are limited to 500 copies. So order now! I'd very much appreciate it. So until next week, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Slime. Thanks for listening. 
we interrupt our regular schedule programming to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, who include Alec Berg, Arthur, Michael Kerrigan, Jean Robin, Michael Davies, Aiden Green, Jim Todd, Bradley Meek, Jeremy Nyhus, Dylan, Josh Martin, Andrew McClure, Maggie C.S., and Domenico Lobuglio. Thank you very much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We could not do it without you. And if you could get on Apple Podcasts and give us a review, we would really appreciate it. It helps the show get out there and, you know, just puts a smile on our face when we see a new review. And with that, we now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Will! Will! Did you see what just dropped? It's the event of the year! My God, for the last five years... We have been waiting, anticipating the new film by two of our very favorite filmmakers, Matt Farley and Charles Roxburgh. Wait, how do we know they're our favorite? Oh, that's right. Me and Will wrote a book about them. We wrote a whole book that you can get on Amazon.com called Moturn on Moturn, Conversations with Matt Farley and Charles Roxburgh. It's well worth the money, folks. Buy the book. Write a review. We'd appreciate it. For those who don't know them, if, you, if you're a new listener to the podcast or you're just tuning in, Matt Farley has written over 22,000 songs that he makes a living of on Spotify and uh, they make these movies with their own money, with a community of actors that they have cultivated who are not actors. They are friends, relatives, uh, parents, you know, what have you, anyone who will be in their movies. And they make fun, weird, mostly monster movies like Don't Let the River Beast Get You and, uh, you know, horror pastiches, Freaky Farley. But they also uh, sometimes make weirder stuff. And these movies are uh, incredible like little community efforts and they're they're very funny and uh, i can't say enough good things about them if you really want to dig into their work you can check out the gold ninja video blu-rays local legends and don't let the river beast get you because ooh, treasure troves those are but we're talking about the fact that the motern media group charlie and farley dropped a movie unannounced on the internet this week Heard she got married. First of all, it's Motern Media and Shock Marathons because that's Charlie's production company. These guys have two production companies between them, technically. Um, but yes, Heard she got married. It's their first movie since 2016, Slingshot Cops. It's going to be one of two movies they make this year. And it's quite different in tone from anything these guys have ever done before. They've called it a psychological thriller. And you know what? They ain't lying. <laughs> yes, it is. God, I don't know how how to describe it. It earns that often used and abused term Lynchian. You know, it's interesting because it's about a Matt Farley-like figure, a musician who is not as successful as he wants to be in, you know, the vein of Local Legends, a previous film that he made. But in this one, there isn't that sense of like friendly community or charming nature of Matt Farley. It's like stuff has gone sour in all of their lives. Yeah, it's like everyone's getting a little older now. So, you know, you see everyone a little bit older. And yeah, it's like in local legends, he plays himself. He plays what he is, like uh, a musician who's desperate to make a living off of off of his music. But in this one... Like, there's a character in both movies played by a guy called Milhouse G, and he's this sort of unscrupulous prom concert promoter. And in Local Legends, you know, he's promising him the world. He's like, oh, yeah, let's get you to perform at, like, the Manchester Comedy Showcase, and you're going to have an audience of 1,500 people, and we're going to pay you a lot of money. And then by the end of the movie, like... Not only is there almost no audience, but there's no money either. But it ends up being a joyous event anyway, because creativity is its own reward. Now, in this movie, this character or a version of him reappears, 
but he's not nearly as nice. Oh anymore. no, he's furious at Matt Farley's character for not getting enough people to show up. You know, he cancels the future gigs that he has because he didn't pull in the numbers. There's no joy in the act of performing. <laughs> There's just sadness and kind of like lost opportunities. And I should point out that this film is packed with Matt Farley singing as well. And all of his no joke songs, which you never hear in any, in any of his movies. Yeah, see, I think it's a little bit more complicated because like in the scenes where he's singing, there is actually joy, you know, but it, it's not enough anymore. You know, when he sings and they're great songs, when it ends, there's almost like a wide emptiness because <laughs> there's a realization there's nothing to go on beyond that. And I realize people listening to this may be like, this sounds like a miserable experience. It's not. It is a delight to watch. So it's a very hard movie to describe, but it, it's shot in black and white and it's a sort of suburban noir black comedy uh, as well as a psychological thriller about, you know, Matt Farley playing a version of himself, sort of, who uh, gets a new friend who's a mailman slash his neighbor slash somebody who wants to play bass in a band with him. And he's sort of getting over the a falling out that he had with his old friend, his old friend and uh, musical collaborator Tom Scalzo. Played by a guy who's not Tom Scalzo. <laughs> yeah, Tom Scalzo, a real person, friend of Matt, played by someone completely different in this movie. <laughs> that is a hilarious meta joke for the super fans. Um, so anyway, a lot of the film is this sort of like cable guy, single white female stalker story mystery. But again, it's enacted by this community of actors, this Altman-esque rep company that Farley and Roxburgh have built around themselves of like neighbors and parents and friends and co-workers, none of whom are professional actors, all of whom are some degree of stilted, uh, although some of them give quite good performances, I think. Chris Peterson, what, the MVP of this movie, longtime friend of Matt Farley, finally getting his chance to so uh, shine as a co-lead. I mean, what a what a strange performance that he gives. It's like affable, but from the second he appears on screen, there's something menacing about him. <laughs> Like the way he smiles, the way he has like a thousand yard stare anytime he's in a shot. So a movie like Don't Let the River Beast Get You, the fact that everyone is clearly an amateur and everyone's a little bit stilted, there's something very charming about that. It's a movie that looks like a community enterprise, like a bunch of people got together and said, let's make a movie. Like, who says we can't make a movie? And they all know they're kind of silly, but they don't care. There's something very joyous about that. But in this one, it's like it's the same actors and that same quality, but there's something a little bit cracked about it. It's like a, a different... Hey, I'm going to use the word again, Lynchian version of reality. Yeah, I love it. It really took me by surprise. And me and Will and our pal Peter, I've talked a lot about of like, you know, if Matt gets more fans and he doesn't have enough yet, will his movies change? You know, will he try to cater to this new audience that comes along? And the answer is clearly no. He's going to make the movies that he and Charlie want to make. And I think that's really satisfying and exciting because you get movies like Hurt You Got Married and the upcoming Metal Detector Mania. They've toiled in obscurity for so long and in doing so, they've built a style that is completely their own, like uncontaminated from the outside world, seemingly. And I don't think it can be contaminated by the outside world because the bond and the kind of 
of uh, structure to be able to continue keep making these movies without any kind of financial gain or attention for so long has hardened it. But it's a machine that is self-perpetuating that they can still keep doing it because they need to do it. And this movie dropped. It's available on Vimeo to buy for $15. I would recommend anyone who's a Motown fan, check it out. 